This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Sending love and light around the world to this global audience. Keep writing in, please. I love your emails. Highlight of the show for me. That along with the guests. Special thank you to the Patreons and our technical wizard on the West Coast, Matthew Wayne Selznick. Thanks, Matthew. A question for you. What would you do if you didn't have a self-critic in your head? My self-critic hates that question, but uh, our guest today wrote a wonderful book about it. It's called Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. It's an honor to welcome facilitator, consciousness uh, teacher, and also author Andrew Lang to the show. Thanks for coming on, brother. Yeah, it is so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Will you talk about the living school and what it is and how you came upon it and Father Richard Rohr? Because we have a lot of listeners, I know for a fact, who are big fans of Father Rohr, who's been on the show several times. Of course, of course. So uh, years and years ago, Richard Rohr founded the Center for Action and Contemplation. I think it was back in the 80s. And in 2012 or 2013, what emerged from that was the Living School, which is a a two-year program, uh, a two-year program that really carries you through what is his wisdom lineage. Um, it, it gives you contact with these readings from these powerful mystics. But the, the real juice of the program is that you are put into community with a cohort of people who are also looking for the same thing, yearning for the same stuff. And so in this community of, I think the, the full cohort was about 200 people and then it got into smaller groups. So I have my little, my little pod of 10 folks uh, that we still are in communication with. And the power of being in a community wrestling with theological conversation and theological topics, but really taking a new look at spirituality that just so often isn't delved into in local parish settings and church settings. Um, and for me, the reason I went there is that I was done with church. Um, I, I just, my story really took me to a place where I can't sit in church services anymore. I can't do this anymore. I I'm, it's not touching my story and my soul, my soul, the way, that I feel uh, needs to be developed. And so I looked up the living school and I think for three years, I looked at it and I said, I'm not good enough for this. I can't, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm too young. I haven't gone through enough stuff. They're not gonna find any interest in having me. And then finally in 20, I don't know, 2017, 2018, somewhere in there, I had an experience. I was engaged uh, to my partner at the time and the, and the relationship fell apart and it just crumbled in front of my eyes. And it was in the midst of the unpacking of that experience and in the midst of the pain of that experience, wrestling with who I thought I was and the stories that I had told myself about myself. In wrestling with that, I took a look at the living school and I said, well, <laughs> I guess now's the time. Let's do it. Uh, and I and I applied and I'm so thankful uh, that I did because those two years were powerful for me in presenting myself with a, a new lens and a deeper lens for the world. It's interesting. Your inner critic basically kept you from going there for three years. You're not good enough. 
Oh yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And, and it was vicious. I mean, it was the, the living school would, they would send an email saying, you know, registrations are open and I would look at it and I would keep it in my inbox and ponder it for a week. And every single time I thought about it, it was a new reason for not being good enough. And that's what I have found so often is that our, our inner critics, there are core narratives that our inner critic has, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not in control. But then there's these other, it always finds more evidence. There's always more evidence to confirm um, that narrative within us. So that was, it was a brutal time for me, but the release, the release of saying, you know what, screw it. No, I'm doing this (laughs) was, was huge. Andrew, how come so often we have to like hit bottom crash and have a disaster before we seek spirituality or a higher power? Because the status quo is seductive. <laughs> I, I think, you know, one of, one of the worst things in my life and in the workshops I hold, one of the worst things that we can give ourselves to is comfort. And that sucks because we all want comfort. We all want reassurance. We all want to know that what we're doing is what we should be doing and that the good things we're experiencing aren't going to go away. And the reality is they might. And so I, I, I don't know if you've seen Ted Lasso. Uh, <laughs> everything comes back to Ted Lasso. Um, there's, there's a scene in it from, I think, the first season where he quotes Walt Whitman. You know, there are judgmental people and there are curious people. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure I give myself to that duality quite as much but i think there is a there's value in thinking about the folks that choose comfort or the parts of us i think that's more real the parts of us that want to choose comfort are the parts of us that are no longer tapping into our curious um our curious side that squishy part of us that's looking out into the world with wonderment and soft eyes and so i i think what spirituality really is at its deep level is a curious wondering of what's going on here? Where, where am I tapping into what is out here um, and, and inside me? So I, I think really, I think the inner critic gets its strength when we choose comfort. The inner critic gets its strength when we say, no, I, I think I'd rather stay right here. And let me, let me list all the evidence for why. <laughs> I love that differentiation between judgment and curiosity. For me, curiosity has been the lifeblood of my ever expanding life and especially my spiritual curiosity. And as I've engaged towards this mystery, curiously, openly, it's met me and then some, as opposed to just mouthing empty rituals that were handed down, texts that are meaningless, you know, doing the dance steps with no spiritual connection, maybe an intellectual one at best, but not a deep visceral experience of the mystery, which is transcendent and ineffable, like even Father Roar talked about when he came on. Yeah, no, it's so good. You know, the a phrase that has really changed me because it reminds me of the embodiment aspect of it, that it can't all stay in your head. Uh, James Finley, who we talked about right before we hit record, uh, James Finley often says this phrase, um, the posture that offers the least resistance to being overtaken by love or God or the divine, whatever language that works for you. And I think about that as how do we develop the tools and the skills and the defaults? How do we retrain our defaults 
so that we walk in the world with the posture that offers the least resistance to being overtaken by beauty. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean we're not going to be all in when the pain hits, right? That doesn't mean we're not going to see the sorrow and the suffering because justice work and activist work is so core to the spiritual path. And yet, how do we shift our posture? So when we're walking in the world, we see these things with open, clear, soft eyes, and we can respond to them and work for justice in ways that are more fully embodied and holistic. And, and I think the inner critic, that's, that's so co core to our inner life as well. How do we see ourselves with soft eyes? How do we carry a posture that offers the least resistance to being overtaken by the beauty that is at the core of us as well? And whew, what a task. That <laughs> sounds yeah, right? easy, except it's very tough. Is the inner critic basically an inherent part of our mind ego? That's a great question. I think so. I, I think this is where I, I believe the inner critic has value. It's not all bad. Is The inner critic is a safety mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. And I think it's important to remember that we all have trauma. And, and trauma isn't an event right? Trauma isn't a moment in time, something that happened to us. Trauma is the unfolding experience um, of the result maybe of an event, or it's just the ongoing experience of things that happen in one's life. So we all have these trauma moments that shift and shape who we are and how we see the world. Well, our coping mechanisms, our responses to those to keep us safe, so often becomes these inner narratives, these negative inner narratives, these inner critic voices that say, you know what, you're not good enough. So don't try because if you try, you could get hurt. Remember that time when? And so, and I, and, and so I think the inner critic is an inherent part of us uh, evolutionarily. And I think that's really important. And so the goal isn't to destroy the inner critic. You know, I know for myself, I will always live with this voice that says, I'm not good enough. That's, that's my particular flavor uh, of the inner critic. That's, that's its big voice. And so my job isn't to decimate and demolish that voice. My job is to notice when that voice is speaking and to notice why is it speaking? What is it speaking in response to? And is it true in this instance? And that's the spiritual work of how do you say, okay, I'm going to listen to you, not destroy you. And then I'm going to make a choice. And that choice is everything. Uh, Viktor Frankl once said uh, that between the stimulus, the thing that happens and our response lay in between, there is a space. And in that space is our freedom to choose. And I think that's, that's everything is how do we, how do we tap into the space in between the stimulus and our response so that we can choose something that's more holistically us, more authentically us. One of my favorite books, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. And just so everyone who's listening knows, you'll never banish the inner critic. It's just, it's in the system. It's part of the hard drive. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you, The more you try to get rid of it, the stronger it gets. You just, for me, what you described well was to bring presence, awareness, stillness to it. And to me, it's just like a voice in the gallery. I used to play sports. It's the heckler. It's and it's doing stuff. And I realized, like you said, it's trying to keep us safe. But basically, we would, we would never leave the house, maybe never leave the closet, leave the bedroom, the bed, you know, because bad things might happen. You know, so it, we just have to, like, let it have its say 
and I have boundaries with mine. Uh, hopefully, like I woke up in the middle of the night the other night and it wanted to talk, but it's three forty. No, all this we're, we're, there's no danger right in this moment. I'm going to go back to sleep, and please let's talk about this after my first cup of coffee. Yeah. And can I name that is a spiritual practice because what you just described was setting boundaries and setting boundaries is an act of love. And I, I think that is so core. And that's something that's emerging right now. This, this understanding in our culture that boundaries and boundary setting is vital and important. Setting boundaries is an act of love because what you're saying is that there's something here that is worth um, my time, there's something here that is worth protecting in a healthy way. And so I'm going to say no for now. And whether that's other people, whether that's people who want to take your time, whether that's one of pe other people who want to invade your emotional, mental, spiritual space, physical space, um, or it's your inner critic at 340 in the morning, you get to set a boundary and say, no, not right now. <laughs> this, this isn't, this isn't what my true self needs right now. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to choose something else. And that, that takes spirit, that takes deep spiritual work to develop the tools, to be able to, to put pause on your inner critic, certainly. And also to put pause on other people learning how to say no and set your boundaries and know, uh, what is in you that is infinitely precious and worth protecting. And I reframe it as I'm actually saying yes to other things. So if I'm saying, if I'm, I'm not really saying no to the thing I don't feel connected to or to be a martyr, I'm saying yes to that walk in the woods or the walk on the beach or talking to you or reading your book or, or stillness or cooking. It's always a yes, but it, it grows from self-love. Healthy boundaries grow from self-love. And I feel like a lot of times a narrative that is unfortunate in our society is to be uh, spiritual, sacred, holy. You're just tirelessly giving. Of course, you're exhausted. You aren't tireless. And you're going to the point where you're wiped out and then you're no good to anybody. You know, I there was a when I was younger, I worked on a political campaign in Seattle and all around me, there were activists that were burnt out and they knew they knew they were burnt out or burning out it was it was like a joke I and mean, they all knew that like this it's coming we know it we're we're running we're we're driving really quickly towards the wall and we know it but we're just going to keep going and that was a breakthrough moment for me when i realized that my spirituality or my sense of connection with this greater universe was at odds with my politics and that was a that was a split moment for me. That was a moment that really um, shattered me in a lot of ways because I had to take a step back. I had to choose to take a step back and lay down these personalities that I had been carrying around. You know, I'm the political activist. I'm going to be out doing this and that. And I had to take a step back and figure out how do you unify these things? How can I have a way of engaging the world that is rooted in the way I actually see the world instead of what was happening, which was I was going to my spiritual community at the time, my spiritual practice and sitting in silence, meditating on, you know, the oneness of the universe and then going to a political rally that was this or that good, bad. <laughs> and, and there was just, there was a clear problem there. And so I think there's, there's also that aspect of how do we unify the way we see the world with the behaviors and and that i think what comes naturally from that is learning what to say yes to
and what in you is worth saying yes to. So I, I love that. I do think it's a yes. Uh, Howard Thurman talks about the sound of the genuine. There's this sound in you that is emanating up from your very core. The work of spirituality is to learn how to say yes to that so that that sound can more freely um, emit into the world in the unique ways that only you can be a part of. And you have to have silence and stillness to be able to hear those voices because they whisper. Yeah, they, they whisper and they, they dance in these little one, two steps that you can miss if you're not learning how to look. And I think for me, that's why walking in nature has become such a spiritual practice that I would recommend it. You know, I used to start workshops. I would give a visualization practice and I would say, all right, everyone close your eyes and picture yourself out walking along a path. And it's a beautiful day. You can hear the little critters going along the ground. You can hear the, a bird or two flying ahead of you. It's sunny. You can feel the, the soft heat on your shoulders. It's not too hot where you're getting sweaty and uncomfortable, but it's not too cold. And picture yourself coming to a pause and taking a big, deep breath and just feeling content. And I would ask people, how many of you have experienced something like that? And universally, almost everyone has experienced some moment of fully present, I am content, I am here. Often I've found that it's in nature. Um, but I think that is also a, a, a flag for those of us who work with people and uh, as they engage their inner life, is how do we create more spaces where they are tapping into those fully content, fully present moment, fully I am here moments because it doesn't just happen to have to happen in nature it can happen in a silent meditation on a chair on a mat it can happen in conversation but i think you're right silence is necessary to begin to practice identifying oh that's what that feeling is that's what that sound is that's what my experience is it's not just a you know oh this is nice and then move on that's a that's a divine moment I have to admit, though, nature to me is the easiest portal in the world. Every time I'm out, it just opens me right up. And I never could find it in a pew, although I could meditate in a cathedral and I could get there or anywhere, really, even Grand Central Station. But when I'm out amongst the trees or on a mountain or by the ocean, the sunset last night, I am so easily transported into the mystery, the endless mystery. And then my ego sort of drowns in that vastness. Yeah, it goes down swinging usually, but it then I'm sort of ex, I'm expanded, and then the that other voice that keeps me separate to have the experience returns. It has to, and then it wants to go eat a piece of pizza or do something, check an email, or just get back to the mind world. But I want to be able to take that with me. Like when you were talking about the campaign, it, your spirituality wasn't integrated. It was only at the chair, the mat, in the room, the pew. The key is for me to bring it into everything, and that's a different consciousness the line uh, when i'm at a you know stop sign and just look to the right or the traffic jam and see the flowers sounds cliche but for it really is true yeah it, it totally is true and it's vital it's important to develop that individual uh, personal ability to connect deeper into the large mystery and for me it's always at the water uh because it just reminds me of I've talked to some people and they say going to the water reminds me of how small I am. And for me, it's, it's a twist on that. It's not how small I am. It's how big this universe is. 
And I, I find, you know, mystery, it's just this great mystery. And then I think the work, the, the work beyond that is that personal transformation, consciousness shift does not matter if it's not integrated into community or collective change. Uh, so for me, I can meditate all I want, but if it doesn't impact the behaviors, if it doesn't um, begin to shift and shape the way I show up in my communities and shift and shape my politics and shift and shape the way I engage with others, especially those who are not like me, then there is a breakdown. And that's where I think individual transformation means nothing without collective transformation. Uh, Angel Kyoto Williams was just transformational for me in understanding that the universe is not mine to tap into, the universe is ours. And so personal practices are important and their collective practices are where true liberation and transformation of our planet will take place. You sound like Father Roar and also my friend Marion Williamson who was just on because- mm, Yeah. Yeah, without justice, it's to me, she says, and so does Father Roar, that spirituality has to, take place in the world too. And it is about justice and helping the least and standing for truth and stuff like that. Are you alarmed that we seem to be to the naked eye regressing where, where it seems to be hurtling towards fascism rights are being stripped away from women and, and all kinds of other people who are the minorities, the, you know, ever scapegoated the immigrants suddenly, or it just sounds like Germany, 1932. Yeah, I mean, concern is an understatement. I, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, we are in the United States. And if you look over in Europe, we are moving and shifting. I'm a history teacher by training. Um, so th there's also a fun twist of my background. Um, but yeah, we, we're, we're moving towards fascism. And I would say there are aspects of where we are that are already fully entrenched in fascism. And so the the work of the spiritually minded folks, I think becomes, uh, I, I honestly think of Bonhoeffer, if we're going to go back to, you know, 1930s. But I also, I also think of folks who are just in their neighborhoods and having conversations. I live in uh, Tacoma, Washington, and Tacoma is a military town. It's also an interesting place because a lot of Seattleites have moved here as prices have gone up, which I'm, I'm included in that, in that, uh, that group. And I think Tacoma is a fascinating place because there's so many different ideologies and opinions and beliefs and ways of seeing the world. And the work is how do I go out into my community, this community that is so many different kinds of people and so many different ways of seeing, how do I go out in my community with my way of seeing in a way that invites other people to see the way I do and invites me to become in contact with the way they're seeing. So there's empathy built and listening built. What sucks is that in the face of fascism, that doesn't seem like much. It just doesn't. And so this very personal, uh, I, in the book, I talk about uh, different levels of impact. You've got your spheres of influence, your personal sphere, communal sphere, and societal sphere. And what I mean by that is that we all, the biggest changes in the world have always happened relationally. And so we've got to pick and choose where are we using our influence? Where are we showing up 
to build influence and to use our influence in ways that can actually relationally shift people. If we're sitting in a space that is only middle, upper class, white, liberal, and we're just talking about how the world is hurtling towards fascism, not much is going to come out of that space, uh, right? We've got to become embodied and uh, on the front line of the battle against fascism. And also, we've got to become aware of the spaces in our lives where we're communicating with people who are maybe fascists <laughs> or, 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 or don't, or I think more accurately for so many of us um, are in spaces where we're rubbing shoulders with people who just don't see the issue. And so how do we step into those spaces and kindfully and skillfully engage those conversations that are going to be very uncomfortable for us because we want to just yell and cry and do all the things that are total that make sense to do in such a pain and be able to hold those conversations without doing that so that the other person can lean into their soft side and be able to tap into that conversation. It just doesn't seem like much in the face of fascism, but I think as individuals, that is some of the hardest work. How do we lean into our soft sides and, and engage those conversations? It's the razor's edge. You articulated it so well. And we are there. You you know, you're a history teacher. We've had so many historians on people like Timothy Snyder, the experts in tyranny and and, and people just David McCullough was on a couple, many times before he passed away. God bless him. And this is what we have. I was thinking about why do, are people drawn towards it? Is it because they're afraid? So they look for certainty and the strong father or mother figure and rules. Because to me, it has absolutely no appeal. I don't understand why anyone would want fascism. Yet many do. And it happens repeatedly. It's like we're on cycles, rinse and repeat. I think people want to be seen and they want to belong. And I think one of, and I'm part of this, I live in a city. And I think one of the greatest divides that we have culturally in the United States, first off, the United States has never been one culture, right? We're, we're too big uh, to pretend like we have a culture as, as United States folks. Um, but I think where we have a giant split is between the urban and the rural folks. And, you know, at being in Tacoma, I, I engage this because we're near some rural towns. So just yesterday, I was talking to someone who lived in Puyallup, which is a little bit more rural than Tacoma, not as rural as, as really getting out there. But the conversation was so clear that we see the world differently. We still have similar needs, right? Healthcare, good schools, but we see the world differently because we're around different people and different issues. The city has... Uh, the city is so much more clearly wrestling with the issue of homelessness than a small town of a thousand people. And so when we engage these issues or when we turn on the news, and that's a whole nother conversation, <laughs> the, the issue of watching news in the United States. Um, but when we do that, we're only looking through our lens. And so I get to look through this lens of urban living in a city seeing folks that are so clearly in need and I see them eye to eye because I pass them on the street. And the folks who are so often in a rural spaces are only seeing that on TV where they are being editorialized as the homeless or they chose this, right? Or, or you know, X, Y, Z. And I think the reason people lean towards fascism or socialism, you know, or, but I really want to focus on that fascism piece 
is that they want to belong. And that's the group that is currently talking to them and speaking clearly to them. And I don't get it fully. I really don't. So I don't have answers, but I, I do think at its root, it's that people want to belong. And I don't have an answer or a solution to that. Uh, but I know, I know part of it is for all of us to learn. Uh, I think Richard is actually the person who said it the first time. And I've mentioned it a couple of times already today, but the phrase of seeing the world with soft eyes. Yeah, he did. That's his phrase. Yeah. Yeah. That was okay. That was him. Yeah. And I just think it's so that's the important thing. How do we see the world with soft eyes and see each other with soft eyes? So I can see that person, especially in my own family where I'm like, all right, hurtling towards fascism here. Uh, how can I engage in a conversation that is embodied, that is rooted in how are you feeling? How are you experiencing a sense of belonging or not? And then work from there because intellectual combat is not going to work when we're going against fascism. It didn't work in the 1930s. It's not going to work now. So it's not about the intellectual combat that most of us are trained in because that's what our schools taught us how to do and our seminaries and our, right? It's about emotional intelligence and emotional uh, soft skills, listening, providing belonging, providing another option. Um, yeah. And that's what I got. <laughs> It's a hard, it's difficult. It's scary. It's terrifying because bodies are on the line. Humans are on the line. And so nothing seems good enough um, in the face of such pain and what I believe to be coming horror. Couldn't agree more and had a very personal experience along these lines here. I'm in Martha's Vineyard and a few weeks ago, a little fascist dictator named Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, put a kidnapped a bunch of people from the Texas border lured them onto a plane with lies and fake brochures and gift cards and sent them up here. Didn't tell anyone, although there was a Fox news crew here talk about propaganda and evil right there, but the community met them with a tsunami, a tidal wave of love. I came upon it and the, I would call it synchronicity. You could say a coincidence immediately got involved and then went back, spent a lot of the next day there just loving. They were people and some were really little kids and, it was be. I wouldn't go there and talk about ideology or the immigration issues. Eighty years old or NAFTA, you know. And of course, the TV wanted a soundbite from the white guy. I declined that. But what we did is we just loved on them. And then it was interesting to see how people tried to spin it around the world, and that there was hate from people who were on the ground handing people these food and blankets and new shoes. And and we were ignorant. You know, they're illegal. No, actually, it's illegal to seek asylum. And they were kidnapped. So and under a normal law where elites are not immune, there would already be like 50 people in handcuffs on their way to the gulag. So, but I was right there and on the ground and feeling it. And that's the difference between the editorialized. I love the way you said that and the direct experience. And I feel like if we're talking about Christianity and the founder who didn't want a religion, by the way, Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, uh, he was just ministering to people and rendering on to Rome, whatever's Rome. And that was one of the questions I once asked Richard, like, when do we know when to render and when do we stand in front of a tank? And, you know, the only way to know that is from your heart. Mm, yeah, hundred percent. The the only way to know that is from your heart because it's, it's your life and it's your connection with that, which is bigger than you. And I don't, and I don't only mean God in that sense or the divine, you know, I mean, humanity. Right. I mean, the the body of people that are around us and the environment. 
And so I, I have this phrase that floats around in my head and it's how do you humanize in the face of dehumanization, right? How do I ensure that what I'm doing, you said, you know, you loving on them. How, what am I doing to humanize people who are being dehumanized? And because that's, that's not just loving on them, that's showing love, that's showing a different way of engaging with a human being and with a group of human beings than the other side is seeing. And so how do you humanize in the face of dehumanization? And there's a, there's a really powerful tool that I've used and your listeners, if this is useful, great. Um, if it's not, you can ignore it. Uh, but I, I have a phrase that lives in my head of it is what it is. And how can I be present with it in a loving way? Right. How do we recognize the issue? It is what it is. This is real. I'm not passing judgment yet. I'm literally just sitting. It is what it is. It's real. And then how can I be present with it? How can I be present with the people who are experiencing the pain? How can I be present with the issue, the conversation, my brother sitting next to me saying things that I don't agree with? How can I be present with this moment in a loving way? Not to demolish or destroy, but to listen and to learn how to be present with it, which is the same as the inner critic. How can I hear it, listen to it? It is what it is. And then be present with it in a loving way so that I can respond to it by saying, no, that's not true right now. And this is what I'm going to do instead, or to be able to listen to it and say, oh, thanks for protecting me in this moment. That was a, that was a good call. And, and that's where that phrase, that tool is really helpful is when I see folks who are being dehumanized in the world, um, or when I'm realizing I'm dehumanizing myself, it is what it is. This is a thing that is real right now. How can I be present in a loving way? Because that's going to get to a different outcome. And if it doesn't get to a different outcome, it's certainly going to get to a different posture for me. And, and that in that posture shift, I think, um, I think worlds open. Will you share some other tools that you had in the book? You really had some great practices in that wonderful, creative, beautiful tomb you put together. Yeah, I, so I'll, I'll share two of my favorite ones. Um, one is nature walking. Uh, that was one of the tools. And just so for folks to know the the book is structured with nine different core inner narratives, uh, these voices of the inner critic that so many of us have these big fears. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not in control. And then at the each end of each chapter, I provide a body practice. What can you do that will help you work in, in an embodied way, work some of this narrative out um, or work it so that you can be present to it. And so one of the tools that I just love and I practice it, um, if not every day, I practice it most days. Um, I call it the right sizing practice. And it's a practice of standing uh, in, in the time that you have. You can do it in two minutes. You can do it in 20. But standing with your legs at shoulder length apart, your body, um, just kind of a nice equilibrium stance and then slowly constricting your body down super, super small and tight as much as you're able to do without hurting yourself. And then slowly expanding yourself as far as your body will possibly exp expand with arms way out and up and your legs fully out. And then just doing that motion three, four, five times. And the reason I find that practice to be so helpful is that so many of us have been taught to make ourselves smaller, 
than we ought to be and take up less space. And so it's a practice for folks who are feeling that to learn physically to take up the space that is yours. And then there's folks, and I'll count myself on this one, that have been taught and uh, indoctrinated to take up way more space than is ours. And so it's a practice of how do I constrict? How do I learn what that what that marshmallowy uh, small part of myself when my knees are almost touching the ground and my shoulders are tucked in and my back is bent? What does that feel like in an embodied way? And then learning to find the equilibrium that feels right and be able to walk into the world with that posture. So I think that's a powerful tool. And it really came for me from learning to just play. I have a friend who we used to go, uh, we used to go on walks through this park in Tacoma and he would call it a ramble. We're going to go on a ramble. And I had no idea what in the world that meant. And the next thing I would know is he'd be going off the trail and climbing down the cliffside to the water and just jumping on logs. And here's a, you know, 35, 40 year old man doing this. And every buzzer in my head said, no, this is what children do. You're, you're 40 years old. 40 year olds don't do this. You're a man. Men don't do this. And in that process of sitting with those, those narratives that were within me, I realized, oh, that's garbage. He like, he's playing, he's learning how to use his body. He's engaging the world in a way that I felt too tight and uptight to do. And from that came this practice of right-sizing. How do we engage our body so we can become comfortable with, um, with this body and this, this, uh, this being <laughs> that we're experiencing life as because our body isn't just a vehicle for our brain. It can't be. Our body is its own thing. So spirituality for me is reconnecting with that truth. Do you have a sitting meditation too, where you sit in silence every day or regularly? I used to, uh, that was actually one of the, the great gifts of the living school. Uh, I had started doing so years and years ago, I formed with a couple of friends, I formed a contemplative community in Seattle. And for about three years, we would come together every week and have dinner and then have a sit, a series of sits over the course of an hour. And that kind of dissipated as I became a teacher and as I was just doing the day to day. And when I joined the living school, I reconnected with that part of myself that allowed me to, you know, let's sit for 20 minutes a day. I never got up to two sits a day. I could, I just could. <laughs> there was something in me that said, no, maybe it was an inner critic. Um, but I, I would sit for about 20 minutes and even that has now fallen off. And one of the great gifts of the living school for me was reminding me of that tool and that space within me to sit for 20 minutes and then giving me permission to let that go if it just didn't feel right. And what that opened me up to instead of being, you know, you've got to do centering prayer, you've got to have a sitting practice. What that opened me up to is how do I begin to experience my life and the world with the same energy of a sit in different spaces. And so the right sizing practice came out of that. Walking in nature has been the number one outcome of that, especially during the early days of the pandemic. That was everything for me. That was a that was a lifesaver in a lot of ways. And so I think I don't really have a personal sitting practice right now. My practice right now is I go on walks and I practice having soft eyes and that's what I do. And you love to teach, don't you? 
I do. And I love to teach all ages. I, I've just recently stepped out of the classroom. So I'm no longer teaching my high schoolers, which has been, there's been some pangs in my heart on that one. I, I miss the energy of the classroom sometimes, but I now teach teachers how to teach. <laughs> so, so that's fun. Uh, and I, I still lead workshops with adults. And I, I find that that's where the, the infilling of my soul space really happens is working with folks in small group settings to take, an, take a look at the thoughts that you had for your life. And maybe if they didn't turn out the way that you wanted them to, what do you do with that now? How do you go forward? And how do you become in touch with your inner life so that you can engage your community or your family in the ways that you really, really, really yearn to do. Well, I want to invite you to come back because I just think you've got a beautiful, fresh, clear voice and you're perfect for this show. Oh, I appreciate it. This has been super fun and easy and easy and a wonderful conversation. That And that's, a, that's another thing is that in spirituality, there's so many moments where you realize this was easy and that is that's a flag. That's a nice flag to, to notice. So this is good. <laughs> Andrew, you want to leave the worldwide audience? This is your classroom today. You could be touching a half a million people on some of these shows we reach out to, which is a mind-boggling number. It's an abstract, but it, I think of it just as one person who happened to come upon us. Could be anywhere in the world, Malaysia, New Zealand, Europe, Kansas, who just happened to find us today. Any words of inspiration from your heart to theirs as we uh, touch each other's hearts and souls here and say goodbye? You know what's coming to me, and it's partially because I can hear my kiddo running in the background in a different room. Uh, keep your eyes open and soft, and that is that's everything. Um, and be be ready to be curious, be ready to say wow, and be ready to pause what you're currently doing to say wow. And that's that's what I got. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light. <laughs>